Welcome to the Business of Design podcast. I'm Cheryl Horn, Director of Operations for Business of Design. A lot has changed at Business of Design since this episode originally aired. For the latest information and rates on events and membership at Business of Design, head to businessofdesign.com. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Business of Design. Gosh, I'm glad you're here. I'm Kimberly Selden. I'm an interior design professional just like you, and we've got someone awesome on the show today, Donald M. Ratner. He is a professional architect who has discovered there is scientific evidence to support techniques for being more creative, and he wants to talk about some of the simplest things that we can all do as creative professionals to nurture our environments so we can maximize our creativity, but also some techniques we can use when we're designing spaces for our clients so they can feel more creative in their own spaces as well. So here we are, episode 143, Creative Boost with Donald M. Ratner. And by the way, he has written a book. It's called My Creative Space, How to Design Your Home to Stimulate Ideas and Spark Innovation. 48 Ideas to Boost Creativity. Of course, we won't get to all of them, but we will consider whether or not a messy work environment is good for the creative mind or whether a tidy work environment is good for a creative mind. Hmm. Some of the techniques he's going to talk about are physical techniques like color and the shape of furniture, etc. Some are more psychological techniques having to do with boosting creative thinking and energy. It made me think a little bit about how little time I actually spend considering whether or not my work environment is set up in a way that is conducive to support the hard work that I do. Hmm. So he gives us an assignment that has to do with assessing creative workspaces. And I, for one, am going to tackle that assignment and I'll let you know what I find out. I also ask him about desks and whether or not they should be facing walls. And I've had so many clients Firmly committed to having a desk in the kitchen which faces a wall. I do my very best to convince them that is such a bad idea, and sometimes I win the argument and sometimes I lose. And I am absolutely convinced that is the worst use of space in a kitchen, and it's a terrible, punitive way to treat yourself. If your desk is facing a wall, spin it around and look out and see the world around you. At least that's my advice. And I know already some of you are saying, oh, but then you have to look at the back of computer cords. Figure that out. There is a solution. The solution is not having you face the wall like you're in a timeout. I guess as a kid, I spent too much time in the corner for always being in trouble. So I have a real aversion to being forced to face a wall. So I do make sure that I'm always facing out in my environment. Anyway, lots of good stuff to think about. I'm so glad you're here. Cheryl is off doing some last minute holiday shopping today. So I'm on my own for announcements and that's just fine because these are going to be really short. Business of Design is having a conference. I know you know that, but did you know we are almost sold out? There are just a few spots left. We'd love for you to be a person who's in that room, in that powerful room where we are going to do some intensive learning 
and talk about strategies for implementation. So it's not going to be just some passive event where you hear a few good ideas and maybe you'll think about implementing them. This is going to be a life-changing experience for your business. And if you change your business, you change your life. I guarantee it. Looking forward to seeing you January 25th and 26th in Las Vegas. Come if you like Las Vegas. Come if you don't like Las Vegas. Come because you want to learn and you want to take your business to the next level. We are also going to be adding a conversation on qualifying clients. And this is important because you need to know exactly what the client is dreaming about in order to satisfy them. And once you know what the client is dreaming about, you can actually attach a value to the desired goal. So this is going to be a really important conversation. I just got back from New York City where I did some training live with one of my coaches. I am so fired up and excited to share with you everything that I've learned. And in a, in our usual business of design fashion, we're going to skip all the superfluous stuff and go straight for what's important for you to implement right away. Don't miss out on the conference, $1,395. You will make it back the first month by implementing any of the things we're going to be teaching at the conference. So January 25th and 26th, come on out. And if we sell out before Christmas, don't despair. Get yourself on the waiting list. Cheryl at businessofdesign.com. Get yourself on the waiting list because there's always a few last minute cancellations and we want to make sure you get to the conference. And by the way, when you're at the conference, you will be hanging out with the coolest interior design professionals in the industry. Our business of design community is second to none. You're going to meet business of design peers. You're going to meet business of design advocates and find out what that's all about. You will also get an opportunity to meet our wonderful friends at BuildLane. We've got some really good learning coming from them. And in addition, they are kindly throwing us a cocktail party Sunday evening to celebrate completion of the conference and to toast what lies ahead because 2020 is going to be your best year if you're at the conference January 25th and 26th. So thank you, Bill Lane, for sponsoring. And we're going to have a quick word from our sponsors before we get into the show. This episode of your favorite podcast, Business of Design, is brought to you by our friends at Build Lane. Build Lane is an amazing app that allows you, the hardworking interior design professional, to produce quality custom furniture from the comfort of your own office. It sounds easy because it is easy. Yes, you may have heard me speak about Build Lane before. It has been an amazing experience to work with them. So we were really happy when they decided to return as an exclusive sponsor of Business of Design podcast. There are a number of reasons I love working with Build Lane, including the fact that the lead times are short, they remind me to pay attention to the details, and they produce quality custom furniture my clients will love while still allowing me to be profitable. That's important to me in my business, and I know it's important to you as well. Right now, you can get yourself a free account at Build Lane, and you'll be immediately eligible to take $250 off your first purchase. Not bad. What are you waiting for? Go to businessofdesign.com and click on the Build Lane ad or go directly to buildlane.com backslash BOD. You'll be glad you did. 
And thank you, Build Lane, for your continued support of Business of Design and the important work we do here and for servicing this incredible community of hardworking professional interior designers. And now, back to the show. Welcome to the Business of Design podcast with Kimberly Selden. Business of Design is the coaching community for independent designers like you. We know it takes more than hard work and talent to successfully run a professional design firm. There are proven business strategies that can solve your immediate challenges and transform your life. Don't try to do this alone. Join today and you'll have access to more than 100 video courses, participate in monthly coaching calls, and find unlimited support within our exclusive members-only Facebook group. Unlike traditional coaching, BOD is a fast track to immediate results. For independent interior designers, decorators, architects, stagers, and landscapers just like you. Monthly membership is only $79. Annual members save two months. What are you waiting for? We all know design matters. At Business of Design, we think designers matter too. Donald, you have like this dream pedigree, a Bachelor of Fine Arts from Columbia and your architect's degree from Princeton, and you've actually worked in the field. So I have to say right off the bat, I'm really excited to talk to you. Same here, Kimberly, and thank you for having me. Of course, of course. Your topic sounded so intriguing because I so often wish there was more science to support what I feel like I know intuitively with my clients, that I would be able to speak with more authority, with more confidence if I had more facts at my fingertips in terms of how I position my suggestions to clients. And partly, I think what we're going to talk about is exactly that, that there are, in fact, facts and scientific evidence that can lead us to make certain decisions and therefore produce results that are more satisfying for our clients and for ourselves. Exactly. It really is um, quite remarkable how much material there is out there that scientists, researchers, educators, psychologists have generated and uh, brought into the world that really ties into a lot that we as design and building professionals do. And what I discovered was that a lot of this information is kind of tucked away. It's hidden in academic journals that maybe only other scientists and researchers might read. Uh, Some of it does make it into the general press, the design press, but it's very fragmented. So I kind of took it as my personal mission to A, aggregate it, pull it all together as much as I could find, and B, serve as kind of a bridge between the world of science and the design community. So translating that information in a way that we can, A, understand it, understand more deeply what goes on in terms of the psychological reactions that people experience when they go into one of our spaces, and B, translated into practical and actionable techniques for implementing this research. Did you discover that you needed some of these tools when you were working in an architecture practice? Or how did you even know that there was this material available for you to mine? Well, uh, there was kind of a pivot moment for me. I, um, you know, I've been happily working along in my practice, largely custom design. So, you know, on at least a kind of a metaphorical level, I had a blank piece of paper to start with um, in terms of bringing out ideas. And then I got a commission to do a modular project. So for everybody, a modular project, meaning that uh, a building is actually constructed as a series of boxes in a factory nearby the site. 
and then those boxes, walls, floors, ceilings, are trucked over to the site and dropped by a crane onto foundations, and they're kind of bolted together, and you put a roof on, and you finish it off, and it's a building that looks like you had stick built it, that you had built it piece by piece in a more conventional way. But this whole idea of kind of starting almost like with Legos, right? These are kind of pre-established units, these boxes, and making a building that way just kind of opened up my whole kind of thinking to, you know, the big question, what is, what is creativity? What's the nature of the process? How does that translate into design? And I started to kind of, you know, dive into that rabbit hole of information that we do have at our fingertips. And I just kept stumbling on these little pieces of information about the influence of the environment on our creative process. And it just started ballooning and ballooning to where I got to the point and said, okay, I, you know, I can see what I need to do. And as I said, bring it together and translate it. Um, you know, we, we have little smatterings, certainly as design professionals. I think we all have intuitive understanding to some degree of how the environment influences our thinking, our feeling, and, what, and, and our actions. But a lot of it is intuitive. And sometimes you find out through the research that it's also wrong <laughs> in the sense that what we thought was happening in terms of individual reactions to some of the visual cues or audio cues in our environment is actually maybe not what, in fact, the research is showing. So there was a lot of revelation for me as a practitioner adding to what I had already intuited as, a, uh, as an architect. Well, that shouldn't be a surprise, I guess. Theory never quite holds up per perfectly in the real world. So let's get into some real world applications. And I probably should backtrack and be a little bit more specific with everybody about what it is you think that the data you're going to talk about reveals for all of us. Let's just tell them the basics first. Well, in a nutshell, what uh, I've discovered in my research and in writing this book is that various uh, elements of the environment, of our physical surroundings and our natural surroundings, um, influence not only how we think, feel, and act in general, but very specifically in how we think creatively. So there are certain tr what I call design triggers, which according to the research will actually boost our ability to come up with creative solutions to the kind of problems that we deal with uh, day in and day out in our practice. And they break down into, I've organized them into three main groups. Uh, some are based on appearances. Some are based on more ambient conditions like lighting, sound, smell. And some are even based on things that people do that, according to the research, actually improves their creative aptitude. So um, what I'm trying to show for everybody is, all right, how can we use that information in our practice in two ways, not only first, to make our own workspaces that much more attuned to the kind of connections that have, researchers have found between heightened creativity and these inputs, but also to help our clients, many of whom are by nature uh, creative individuals, right? People who come to us for our services are already attuned to the value of what we bring uh, to the project, and that tends to you know, create a population that is very attuned to creative development, whether personal or professional, right? So I'm writing this book both for people who are interested in creativity as a personal pleasure, as a passion, a pastime, and also the professionals such as ourselves or the people who work at home in a creative industry. So I'm talking to a lot of different people here, but definitely to the design community um, most of all. Okay, well, no shock to anybody. I'm so selfish. I just want to know right away, how's this going to help me in my business, Donald? So I have to create, keep my creative battery charged all the time, as does any creative professional, which describes everybody listening to the podcast. So 
what types of things do we need to think about in order to, I guess, help ourselves reach a peak in terms of our creativity? Is that what we're talking about? We're, we're talking about boosting our creativity to the next level? Yes, because in a sense, look, we all, you know, I think we all have the experience of in the course of our day, we have some creative up times, we have some creative down times. It's not like we are a static, you know, uh, mechanic, robotic uh, creature that just does the same uh, level of work day in and day out. So we all have a range, certainly. But what the research is suggesting in the sense is that we almost um, outperform ourselves. We reach our peak, we optimize, we maximize our potential in a more consistent way when our environment supports the idea of creativity. So just for example, there are colors that researchers have found that if we are exposed to actually makes us more creative, more able to come up with novel and useful ideas for products or services or whatever problem we're, we're trying to solve. Uh, even the way we are oriented towards our space, whether we are facing into the room or facing towards a wall, the shapes of our furniture. Now, this was one I had. No, I wouldn't even have thought to ask the question. Do the shapes of furnishings actually impact on mental processing in a creative mode? And it turns out they do. Curved shapes, furniture that are dominated by rounded uh, contours, curvilinear elements, circular elements, put us into a more creative frame of mind than do than does furniture of a more rectilinear, straight-edged. Uh, sharp cornered nature. And there's a whole science behind that. It sounds kind of woo-woo, but it really gets us into just how we are genetically engineered as human beings to think and act. And nature has programmed us in certain ways to boost or push us into a kind of creative mode in one case, but also into what we call the opposite, the analytical thinking mode in another case. I have to look around my life and I think there are so many squares and rectangles. I'm going to, I got to think about if there's even anything round in my office besides the lamp, I guess, that I'm well, looking I'm at. Well, I'm looking at one right now. The clock right behind you is circular. Genius. All right. Okay. But I want <laughs> to go back and ask about colors specifically, like right. what colors are we talking about? Okay. So there's uh, two particular uh, experiments relevant here. So one of them uh, was conducted in a university setting, as many of these are. These are under laboratory conditions. And what they did was to take uh, groups of students and divide them into three groups. And they had them perform uh, what are called creativity assessment tests, exercises, problem-solving tests on a computer. And they were kind of clever about this. What they, If you can kind of visualize, what they did is to inset the test material on the computer screen so that there was a pretty hefty border a background around the material, if you could imagine looking at, say, a Word document, around it would be either red, blue, or white background, right? So they wanted to find out, does red or blue in any way impact creative thinking? The idea being with the white group, of course, that's the absence of color. So any deviation in test scores from the red group to the blue group could be reasonably attributed to the fact that the only thing different about their environment, about their perception, was these colors that they were being exposed to. So what they discovered after all the testing was over, these people are taking different kinds of tests. Some are measuring creative thinking. Some are measuring analytical thinking. Turns out the blue group outperformed the red and white groups on these creativity assessment tests. In other words, they came up with more original, novel, fresh, out-of-the-box solutions to the problems they were given. So blue is one of these colors that has been shown to actually boost creativity. That is incredible. So I wonder if on some level, because isn't blue kind of unilaterally the most beloved color year after year? 
So I wonder on some level if people just are attracted to it because they somehow can feel the energy. I'm too obtuse. I don't feel the energy at all. But maybe there are people who do. Well, you know, you 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 touch on something that's definitely um, been out there, which is uh, that blue is, as of all the colors, yes, it is the most sort of universally loved color. And I think we can probably surmise some of the reasons why. One is, of course, blue skies, blue waters. These are all very positive uh, associations we make with positive environments. I go through, in, in, in the book, I go through a whole long discussion of how I think it's also tied into our sense of space, right? So we know blue is kind of a recessive color, right? It optically appears to move away from the eye when we're looking at things that are blue. So it suggests almost an expanding space, so a space that's, uh, let's say, built uh, with all blue walls will feel like the walls are moving a little outward. Whereas optically, if you take exactly that same room and you render the walls in a red, they're going to feel like they converge toward you, that they move towards you, so the sense of space is constricting. So if we think of openness of space as uh, promoting an openness of mind, open to new ideas, open to new ways of doing things, all the things we associate with being creative, we can kind of see how maybe that input, that design trigger, could promote the idea of spaciousness in our minds, whereas more constricted space, what does that make us do? It makes us feel a little more closed-minded, a little more analytical in our thinking. Okay, what does my entirely black office say about me? <laughs> uh, that you like black. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. But now, here's a, color is one of the most complex of the various inputs, of the various cues that I deal with, because it really operates on three levels, and you touched on one. One is kind of a universal level, right? Uh, everybody around the world seems to feel very positive about blue. Then you have a cultural level, right? So in Chinese culture, black is actually considered a good luck color, whereas in ours, it has certain, uh, shall we say, funereal associations. <laughs> it's also cool and hip. Uh, so something a little different, but the same color, obviously cultural impact plays a big part. And then finally, there's the personal level. So if you I don't know, did you have a black bedroom when you grew up and you had a happy childhood and you associate black with good things? That's very personal to you. So color operates on more levels than, than some of these. Okay, so I don't have to necessarily don't have to paint, but to me, the black is, it's kind of a soft black and it seemed like vastness. It seemed like no distraction, unlimited um, possibilities. Um so maybe it's just, if, it, if that's what it means for me, that's what it means. Well, that's, a, that's, that's another important point. Look, I, you know, I, I, we're dealing with scientific literature and what happens uh, in terms of the people that are being studied. First of all, it's not one person. If you're a scientist and you're running an experiment, you don't want just one subject, obviously, because it could go anywhere. So they're talking about 10, 20, 30, 5. In this color experiment they mentioned with the blue and the red, they had 600 students. So you're trying to get a kind of average population because if you're designing, let's say, in a workspace, a, an office, you're dealing with maybe dozens of people, hundreds of people. You can't design towards just one person that you happen to know works there at the moment. Obviously, you're trying to hit as many people as possible with the broadest possible brush. But when it comes down to the individual, you might find that some of these techniques that I talk about don't work for you. In fact, you might even find the opposite. So the research says we're at generally at our creative peak in the morning, roughly 9 to 1 p.m., say, for a whole host of reasons. Well, you may be a night owl, and you do your best work in the middle of the night, and that's absolutely fine. There's no right or wrong. It's dealing with large populations of people as groups. And these are things that we take 
in consider into consideration as a whole. In other words, you're not just going to paint your office blue, but there are other things you're going to say that will help you put yourself in a position to be more successful creatively. Yes. Now, on you know, under certain circumstances, one single change in the environment, one single trigger or um, a, a cue can make a difference in how you think, everything else being what it is. On the other hand, yes, there's a certain cumulative effect. So the more you can engineer your creative space or that of your clients to align with the research, the more uh, likely you are to kind of hit your peak. Okay, so I understand this in terms of my own space for creativity, but there has to, is there also an element that has to do with being organized in order to become more efficient? Well, there is some of that. I mean, there's two aspects, I would think, when you when you ask that question. Um, first is what I would call a routinization of um, practice. And it's been shown definitely through um, kind of biographical studies of, of eminent creatives, people who are, of course, historically known to be creative, that one thing that unites them, or two things, actually, that unites them is, one, they have a designated creative space, a space they come to again and again, to do their creative work. Because what's happening there is almost, the, you know, we all know Pavlov's dogs, right? The ones that got fed and the bell was rung every time they got, you know, fed in their bowl to the point where all the scientists had to do was ring that bell and they'd start salivating with or without any food. So we undergo what's called classical conditioning as well, so that if we come to the same spot time and again to do our creative work, our minds kick into a creative mode just by entering that space. The other part of the equation is time. So if you follow a certain routine, and you work with certain hours every day, and then you have off, and then you do this, and then you do that, um, that will tend to boost your creativity as well, and it's certainly something that the eminent creatives do. A flip side of organization, just because a lot of people ask about this question, is the question of neat versus messy environments. So there actually is research on this where one experiment found that a more, how shall we say, disheveled uh, environment, a more messy environment actually boosts idea generation. I thing. knew it. I knew yeah, it. If you can see the, the pile of stuff beside me here in the yeah, office. Okay, thank you for that. Oh, you're quite welcome. Um, uh, and the thinking there is, look, you know, creativity is kind of a messy process, right? You jump around, you get a good idea, then you kind of go two steps backwards. It's not a linear sequence like you're, you know, solving a mathematical equation or something. On the other hand, uh, any neat nicks that happen to be listening now, do not feel bad. Do not feel like you're in the minority here. There is just a stronger argument for actually having a neat and organized environment because of basically all the bad things that can happen to you if your environment gets completely out of control. So your mental health declines, your physical health declines, all sorts of bad things can happen. And along with that, of course, comes creative aptitude. So maybe it's kind of like an organized mess or you keep your mess in your kind of creative space and the rest of your home or office is kind of together, whatever works for you again, but that's what the research is showing. Okay, no, that that totally describes it. I have an organized mess. Somebody else would walk in and not know where things are, but I know exactly where they are. Um, and I can also be hyper-organized in other rooms in the house, but somehow my work life just will not be contained in the same way. It's really interesting to me. So maybe there's a scientific reason for it. Yeah, different aspects of one's life shouldn't necessarily carry over into other aspects. So your creative space, I think you got it exactly right. Your creative space is the way you want it to optimize your creativity. And there's a wonderful picture I have in the book of Mark Twain 
uh, sitting in a uh, townhouse, his townhouse in New York City, where he lived for a short while. And he's sitting in front of his desk, and the desk is just like covered in, you know, papers and stuff, and it's all over the place. But the rest of the, the well, probably a parlor, look perfectly neat. So there's his brain space sitting on his desk. He's a writer, of course. That's his creative space. But the space around him, absolutely, you know, together and, and, and wonderful. Um, much of this, I think, would be in your book. And tell us the name of the book, by the way, and tell us where we can find it. So the book is called My Creative Space, How to Design Your Home to Stimulate Ideas and Spark Innovation, 48 Techniques According to Science. And it can be found, of course, on any of the uh, usual online vendors, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, IndieBound, and hopefully in your local bookstore as well. And you must have personal experience with making some changes because as you were discovering these things, were you also at the same time saying, wait a minute, I need more round surfaces in my office? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly one of the things that, um, you know, I talk about is, of course, standing versus sitting desks. So I've made a much more concerted effort to not be sitting for long periods of time because I find that standing up does, in fact, get the juices flowing in a, in a better way. Um, I've become much more attuned to the importance of nature, and that's a lot of the things that I cover in the book because we are, you know, natural beings. We are homo sapiens, and we were genetically engineered from day one to be creative, so the more we can kind of reconnect to nature, natural elements, whether literally by looking at it or bringing it into the home or the space, or even just representationally by having botanic prints and uh, flowers and things of that sort uh, in our environment, that's a huge uh, design trigger that leads to improved creativity. So yes, absolutely, I've become much more attuned to some of these um, techniques. And of the techniques that you've applied in client projects, what would you say has produced the most dramatic results and what what were they like? You know, I guess one of them is uh, what I, I call, and I, I number all of these techniques in the book and I give them just kind of short labels, but I call this, num this is number 11, gather in a circle. So what they find is that um, when you're talking about a more of a group situation, so either with a, a project team or in a, in a residential context, a family, in an organizational context, a group of people working on a project, is that rectangular tables are less conducive to the free flow of ideas, of creativity, of brainstorming than, say, a circular table. And why is that? It has to do with a lot of different things. For one thing, with rectangular tables, of course, who's sitting down at the end? It's somebody with some status, authority, project leader, principal, head of family, somebody there that has a kind of authority. And what happens, of course, when that person throws out ideas, if there's a conversation or brainstorming session going on, is that those ideas tend to be, uh, shall we say, received on the positive end of things because of just the political nature that people have to contend with in an organization. Uh, whereas if that same idea comes from someone way down at the end, sitting in the corner, you know, maybe it'll fly, maybe it, it won't. But that's not what you want in a creative environment. You want ideas to be evaluated on the basis of their merits, not on who had them. So the wonderful thing about a circular table or even a square or concentric table is that there's no special seats, right? No hot seats. Everybody is equidistant from everybody else. Everybody can see everybody else because you're slightly arced or you're bent in some way. Whereas you know what it's like for somebody at one corner of a long rectangular table to try to talk to the person on the same side in the opposite corner. You have to practically lean you know, over the middle of the table and turn your head 90 degrees. It's kind of painful. That discourages uh, exchange of ideas between those people. Whereas, again, you want it to be more free-flowing. So a circular table, they're just crisscrossing all over. So... 
I've, you know, applied that if you either in a residential context, even a dining table, perhaps you might want to think about using circular versus rectangular in an organization, again, using concentric figures rather than um, a long rectangular one. Have you tried with families ever introducing things like that and seeing the results yourself? Or, and are there other places you can apply that? Like I'm thinking in a kitchen, you wouldn't necessarily do a round island, but what could you do, I guess, in a kitchen? Because even if you're not a professional chef, you might want to be creative as a homemaker or as just as a human being who likes to cook. Yeah, kitchen is a great example because, yes, it, it operates on both or potentially operates on both the professional level and the personal level. You don't have to be a professional chef to get a kind of creative boost out of cooking. In fact, I, in talks that I give, I use cooking as a great platform for running through what I call the seven attributes of creativity because cooking encapsulates a lot of what creativity is all about. And in fact, it's probably one of the most creative spaces in, in almost every home. Uh, it's kind of a laboratory, right, where you can try things and combine things in novel and unusual ways and do all the things that creativity has us do. So yes, a circular, uh, circular island would probably not work in, in nearly every condition. But that's the nice thing about having more than one strategy, having more than one technique to elicit this kind of creative idea formation um, response in people. So in a kitchen, it can have to do with colors. It can have to do with bringing in nature. It has to do with how people are oriented. Maybe you have seats at the island so that the person who may be cooking and eating, you can have more of a conversation than if you're over somewhere in a corner and you have to kind of crane your neck again to talk to somebody who's in the cooking area. So lots of different ways these, these um, techniques can, can manifest themselves. How do you feel about the dreaded um, kitchen desk that faces the wall? Or I guess it could even be a kids in a, in a, a desk in a kid's bedroom, couldn't it? Yes. And uh, I have a, a definite, um, uh, I address that, that, that issue um, head on, shall we say, in a technique I call face your space. So yes, if you know, if I'm asked what's the maybe biggest quote mistake, uh, let's call it that, that people can make that in their environment that tends to discourage uh, creativity or suppress it, it's probably taking your desk and butting it up against the wall, uh, as as many folks do. There's two problems with that. One, and this gets back to that what I was talking about, wanting to have a sense of the spaciousness, expansiveness around you. So if you're facing a wall, you're 20 inches, 24 inches from that wall, your sense of space is very compressed because you've got a solid plane right in front of you. So that's problem one. The other is, but almost by definition, you tend to have your back to the space behind you. So there's a theory out there called prospect refuge, which says that back in our cave people days, we were genetically engineered, wired to seek out habitats, homes, shelter, that would afford, uh, afford maximum prospect, meaning view, right? So like 180 degree sweep. And at the same time, afford maximum refuge, meaning protection, right? So our blind spots, we couldn't, we couldn't be attacked from behind or above places we couldn't see. So if you think of those, you know, wonderful mountain homes that are sitting and perched up on a hill, on a hill or a slope that look out over a valley, that's like prospect refuge embodied perfectly, which may be why, of course, you know, people pay big dollars to have those kind of sites and have those kind of homes. So by exposing your back to the space, you're in a sense exposing yourself to attack. Now, these are not literal, of course, threats, but it doesn't matter because we are still cave people on some level, right? Uh, evolution moves too slowly to the fact that it's only in the last couple of thousand years 
even less really, that we now spend 90% of our time indoors. Up till then, for 200,000 years, we spent all of our time as Homo sapiens out of doors, and that's where we're really engineered to survive and thrive in, not in interior environments. Some of these uh, residual effects of our original brain wiring are still in play and still affect our state of mind. And when we have our backs exposed, we are more stressed, slightly more stressed, subliminally, of course, by the sense that we might be attacked. And when we're stressed, we're least creative. Stress is probably the number one creativity killer uh, for all sorts of reasons. But if you're feeling stressed, that's the time definitely not to uh, attempt to do your, uh, your creative work. That's interesting. You mentioned so that we spent all this time outside and evolution is slow. So we're still kind of hardwired to spend that time outside. How much then does lighting have to play in all of this? How much of a role does lighting have to play? Lighting is huge. Uh, I deal uh, with that subject, uh, I think with three or four different techniques. Of course, the first thing you really want is as much uh, natural light as possible because um, we, we feed on natural light in essence. Our brains need natural light. A lot of our biorhythms, bodily rhythms are tied to natural light, in particular their colors, right? From morning, amber, blue, and more amber, and then ending uh, in a fiery blaze at night. So a lot of our rhythms are tied to that. Of course, the big problem today is we're all looking at computer screens for long hours of the day. Those screens are predominantly blue light. So instead of that changing natural light, we get this constant bombardment of blue light, which whacks out our systems and we become sleepless or anxious and you know all the bad things that can happen. There are ways to deal with that. Um, so certainly as much natural light as possible, not direct, of course, because you don't want glare and you don't get sunburnt and all of that, but diffuse, bounce, reflected light is great. But of course, we all need electric lighting. So um, ideally, in an ideal world, your electric lighting would be programmable to change colors through the day, to try to mimic, parallel the colors of the natural light outside. And we're getting there. We have more, certainly uh, both on a, uh, a residential level and on a commercial level, we have more capabilities. I'm not quite there yet, but there are steps being taken to create these lighting programs that will preset and change themselves throughout the day. So that's another thing we could do. Lighting is just a fascinating topic, and that is exciting technology I'm looking forward to using, particularly, I guess, in those creative public spaces, kitchens and, and offices. But private spaces must be impacted with creativity rules as well. Uh, even the bedroom, of course, is a, is a great place um, for generating ideas because you're asleep, and a lot of times ideas come to us in the middle of the night. So what you want is to, of course, have night tables next to your bed or somewhere where people can leave a pad or a pen, whatever it is that they can use to jot down those ideas as soon as they wake up or as soon as they come out of their sleep because you know what? You're going to forget those ideas if you don't write them down very quickly. So it really covers every square inch, certainly of a home and often of a workplace as well. I feel like somehow I'm getting shortchanged. I don't often wake up with some burning creative idea in my mind. So, hmm... Well, here's a tip for you. Um, you know, <laughs> nothing wrong with that per se, and maybe you get better, more rest that way. But one idea I talk about or write about is called idea seeding, S-E-E-D-I-N-G. So what you want to do is, before you go to bed at night, think about some creative problem that you've been working on that day that you're still not, you know, completed with. Just think about it. Some, you know, writer's case, they sometimes look at the last paragraph that they read. Uh, and then, you know, tuck yourself in, go to sleep. What you might find is that your brain will actually pick up on that 
creative problem you're trying to grapple with and work on it as you go to sleep. Our brains actually do a lot while we're asleep. Um, they're banging away at creative problems. They're bringing up things and memories and associations that have been kind of tucked back there during the day. And that's why a lot of times when people wake up in the morning, they actually do have some good ideas or do have new insights into the problems they've been working on. Okay, I'm going to take, I met a new client a couple days ago, and I'm, I have this strong feeling that I, it's not a good job for me. So I'm going, to, I'm going to go to bed with that tonight. I'm going to think about that before I go to bed and then make a decision. It's not so blatant that I know ex- absolutely I should not work with this couple, but there's just something kind of niggling that I think, no, I don't think we're a fit. Hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I understand. You're on the fence, and uh, yeah, it's sometimes hard to make the call. Um, but, you know, that's a big part of creativity, oddly enough, or sort of paradoxically enough, is that if you want to get good ideas, sometimes it's best to stop trying to have them because our brains need what's called incubation periods, incubation time to step away from problem solving, especially when you're kind of, as you say, on the fence or you've got a, you've got a log jam, something, and let the back of mind kind of go at it. Um, and in fact, there's section of the book I call the action tactics. So these are things people do that tend to bring out our creativity. And a lot of them have absolutely nothing to do with creative problem solving itself. But that's sort of the point, which is when you take your mind off of something, uh, that back of mind kicks in and brings you to a solution uh, more quickly than say, if you try to deliberately, you know, whack at it for hours and hours uh, in the day. Which is probably just a really good reminder as well to give yourself a little bit of breathing space when you're in the creative part of the project because you do want to make sure there's time to just let it incubate. Exactly. Absolutely critical. Um, We can only do so much deliberately, consciously, and then you want to step away, whether that's for an hour or taking a vacation or uh, leaving the problem altogether. It's absolutely critical before you kind of bring it to its conclusion that you give it that time to gestate, to incubate. All right. And give me the name of the book one more time. It's lengthy. Yes. So the short title, the main title is My Creative Space. And the subtitle is how to design your home to stimulate ideas and spark innovation, 48 techniques according to science. We didn't quite get through 48, but we, you did give us a lot, which I really appreciate. And I'm going to think about some blue for the office instead of black. Maybe it's just time for a change. Uh, we like to end every episode with something we call design intervention. And it doesn't, by the way, have to be related to the topic. It could just be like the great piece of advice that you've learned in the profession, something you think will help others? Well, uh, I guess, yeah, the, 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 the thing that comes to my mind is not in of itself directly related to what we do. So I um, am thinking about a lyric from a very old Bob Dylan song, uh, which goes, I'm sure folks have heard this, you don't need to be a weatherman to know which way the wind blows, um, which, you know, you can interpret in lots of different ways, but the way I kind of think of it, and it does bring us back to what we've been talking about, is that, look, we don't, you know, We as a profession don't need to be cultural forecasters or have a uh, crystal ball or be able to see in the future to kind of understand at this point that creativity and innovation are going to be very important skill sets uh, in the 21st century as the century continues to evolve. And not just in terms of what we do, but really across the spectrum. And this is borne out by a lot of 
research and data. In fact, uh, they've canvassed uh, CEOs of businesses and asked them, you know, what do you think is the most important skill you want to see in people working for your organization? And creativity comes up uh, more than any other topic. So, you know, I know it's tough getting through the day and we're just focused on doing our business and getting our projects done. But sometimes we want to look forward and understand where's the future going. And I think it's going in the direction of creativity uh, as an important aspect of human life. And the more we can support that both for ourselves and for our clients, I think the better off we all will be. Thank you so much, Donald. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Kimberly. Thank you. Thank you for being a part of the Business of Design community. If you love what you hear on the podcast, take the next step by signing up at businessofdesign.com. As our thank you, you'll gain access to Business of Design's 15-step project management strategy, a free introductory course which includes three Business of Design systems you can implement for immediate results. And when you're ready for success, a Business of Design membership, monthly or annual, will dramatically improve your business and your life. What are you waiting for? Together, we will achieve extraordinary results. Start today. Start today.